I always drove cars that were worth probably less than a thousand bucks. I mean, I drove beaters until just last year when I was 48, I finally bought myself a, a used $24,000 car. But I was driving carpooling kids in my old minivan. I mean, the, the liner on the ceiling would be hanging down. We must have had like 30 or 40 like little safety pins holding that thing up. It smelled bad. It had dents in it. It was just faded. My kids are just mortified that I had to drive all these kids around from school, the dance studios, and this and that. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 140. Jace, what's going on, man? How are you? Not a lot. Doing great. Just got done with a little workout. You know, just just reading the news, checking up on things, looking at uh, what I got ready for the week coming up here and kind of we're hitting full stride into the summer. What about y'all? Yeah. What'd you do for your workout? Peloton? No, no. I did some CrossFit tonight. Okay, nice. I just went on a run. It's amazing how much better you start feeling when you consistently do it, you know? Oh, Two, yeah, three man. times a week, you don't you don't feel it as much, but four, you five, every six day times, you start, oh, yeah. it, it starts making a big difference. More energy at work. We got to get you more on, engaged. That, uh, on Strava still, though. Still pushing. Dude, pushing I got my own, on let's, Strava. See this let's see what this thing's called. Run Tracker. No, we got to get you uploading that all to Strava. It's like the Run social tracker. network of, of workouts, cycling, running, and put all that on there for you. Track it, everything. Yeah, the social networks, none of which I have except for, <laughs> <laughs> except for the podcast. Clark's not a true millennial. I'm he has goat. no social network. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was pretty interesting. Last week we had Matt, and, and a lot of people wrote in about his spreadsheet. We're still working on on getting, uh, getting that from him. We've been emailing back and forth with him. So trying to get a clean version of that that we can distribute to those of you who have written in. And we're also working on our own. Jason and I both have a a spreadsheet that, I mean, I haven't seen yours, you haven't seen mine, but I assume somewhat similar that we use to track our net worth. And so that's something we're piecing together. We're going to use both of ours and others that we've seen. And and so if there's something you're looking for, or, you know, if, if there's one that you've come across that you like or something like that, that's one tool that we're working actively to put together is a spreadsheet that can track net worths. Because a lot of these tools mint you need a budget. Some of these other ones, they're they're good for some things, right? Mostly budgeting, but a lot of the times it's hard to track your net worth or they're not necessarily built for that. Yeah, and it's a common thing we ask our millionaires, right, is what tools and, and things that they use to help them. And, and you and I have got a spreadsheet, and I think the spreadsheet serves its purpose, and we've built it you know, somewhat customized for ourselves. But I have a lot of complaints about my own, even though I can't really change it much because I think there's things out there related to technology and being able to, you know, access things via our phones and being able to look at graphs and, and look at things, you know, trend over trend differently than, than what we can produce in, in a spreadsheet and being able to kind of have those at our fingertips versus digging into a spreadsheet. So other, other than getting this all together, you know, I think our millionaires in general, have a wide array of apps and and things that they use, uh, you know, that have helped them over time, whether it be for budgeting or whether it be for, uh, you know, tracking their net worth or whether it be to, 
you know, certain investments that they might be interested in or trading apps. And, and we've gone through several of those. And I think we'll, you know, we'll be putting together a basically kind of a, a best use manual, if you will, uh, you know, for, for, you know, wealth strategies. Uh, and, and in terms of building your net worth and tracking where your money goes, because I really do think it, it is important to do so. It's one way that we are able to keep score, uh, you know, amongst ourselves and kind of track progress you know, year over year. I always find it interesting when we have some of these millionaires that come on, like the one today where he's, you know, he says, hey, I've been tracking this since I was, you know, in my early 30s and he's in his late 40s now and he's got his net worth at, you know, I think what he say, $57,000 when he was 32 years old and now he's, you know, worth over two million dollars you know less than 17 years later it's pretty remarkable yeah and and one thing i think we've hit on this show before and probably if you're a long-time listener you've noticed is a lot of our millionaires don't budget in fact the majority of them do not that doesn't mean they're not aware of their spending or they know where their money's going but they're they're not actively using a budget each month but i, I think it would be fair to say jason you correct me if i'm wrong if you feel otherwise i, I would think I don't know, 80% of them or 85% of them are very aware of their net worths, right? Totally. And probably, I don't know what, 20 or 25% really, really actively track it in the sense of a, a spread, some sort of spreadsheet or some sort of tool, right, where they're actively looking at it and updating their net worth. Yeah, you know, I find it interesting. You and I spend the spend our world, or most of our world so far, at least in in financial statements of companies and our own and everything else, and and using that data to one analyze, but two make decisions. You know, and and typically, you know, companies got you know a balance sheet, an income statement, or P and L, and then and then their statement of cash flows. And how many people don't look at that level of detail, you know, in their own household? And, and our millionaires are definitely ones that do and that pay a lot of attention. It's not necessarily that they're f- completely 100% focused on that net worth only, but it's definitely a measuring stick to kind of see what progress they're making and wh- maybe where they want to make changes or make different, you know, where their risk tolerance might be one to another, you know, which goes into kind of the, the comment that I think that we just got, uh, you know, a review on, on Apple iTunes. I mean, he alludes to that ex- exactly. Yeah, so I'm going to give him a shout out. That was Follow Your Curiosity. It looks like he's from Australia. His review on iTunes says, I've listened to every episode and can say for certain that Jason Clark have given the world something of immense value. After a while, you can pick up on the patterns and habits of the millionaires and review yourself. Start initiating their habits in your world and alter the trajectory of your entire life. You can even see clearly the differences between the strategies of the DECA millionaires and your typical millionaire next door. And finally, it seems to come full circle and remind those of us seeking to become wealthy and free that once you achieve your first million or more, you'll understand that family, friends, health, and a purposeful life are more important than how wealthy you are. So thanks again to follow your curiosity. If you listen to the show and you enjoy the show, if you learn something from it, if you get something out of it, we appreciate any reviews we get on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever platform you listen on. It helps us grow the show, reach new interviewees, and, and keep this thing going. So again, we're working on that net worth tracking spreadsheet. Hang tight with us. We'll, we'll get to that. And also working on this new website that should be up here in the next probably a couple months here, right, Jay? So yep, pretty cool stuff, but taking us some time. So Matt, we had last week, that was an interesting interview, working on his spreadsheet again to get it to those who've asked us, net worth of just over 1.3. He lives in a townhouse that's worth 75000 and is only 30 years old. He's a financial planner, so a really great interview with him. If you missed that, that's episode 139. Today's show, as Jace alluded, really interesting interview with John. He has a current net worth of 2.2. 
He has about 750 grand in real estate and about a million dollars in cash and investments, which include all his retirement accounts and 529. John is 49 years old. He works as an airline pilot. And as Jace mentioned, he had a net worth of about 57,000 or just 57,000 in 2003 when he was 32 years old. So in about 17 years, he grew his net worth by about 2.1 million. So pretty remarkable. This episode is sponsored by SaveTheChildren.org, so we're appreciative to them for sponsoring today's episode. Save the Children believes every child deserves a future. In the United States and around the world, they give children a healthy start in life, the opportunity to learn, and protection from harm. They deliver lasting results for millions of children, including those hardest to reach. Right now, the coronavirus pandemic is the biggest global health crisis of our lifetime. It threatens children in every way. COVID-19 has already left many children without caregivers, out of school, and exposed to violence and exploitation. Child poverty is rising. With your support, we can help children in unsafe households and help support distance learning in the face of school closures. For just $5, you can help. $5 can buy a baby's first book or provide a nutritious breakfast and a lunch for a child who usually relies on school for food. $10 can nourish an out-of-school child for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. To donate and learn more, head to www.savethechildren.org slash savekids. So thanks again to savethechildren.org for sponsoring this week's and last week's episode. But without any further delay, please help me welcome John to the show. John, you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Sure. Thanks for having me on. 49 years old. I live in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Married uh, to an awesome wife. We've been married for 20 years. Know each other for about 25 years. We have two teenagers. Uh, my total net worth right now currently is 2.2 million. If you include the house without the equity in the house, 2 million. Total liquid, uh, about 1.2 million. That's spread across my uh, 401k, both our Roth IRAs, um, 529s for the kids. And real estate, we have about $1.5 million for the real estate. 840,000 of that is uh, equity in it. We own uh, nine single family rentals. We started buying those about five years ago. Uh, let's see. I hit my first million three years ago when I was 46 years old. And I started keeping track of all of this when I was uh, about 32 years old. In about 2003, I had a net worth of 57000 That's when we had our first daughter. At that point, I basically wanted to retire and have $1 million. I thought I could live. we could live comfortably off $1 million in 2003 or 2000, somewhere around there, um, which would be 2.4 million when at my retirement age of 60 years old. So basically I calculated, I just need to save 750 bucks. I got on one of those free online calculators. And if I save 750 bucks a month with what I had, calculate 3% inflation, give or take, and I guesstimated around, I think eight or 9% on my money, I would have that magic number of $2.4 million. So basically, once we had kids, I just put it on autopilot. My wife became a stay-at-home mom and um, just kind of put the money in uh, age-based 401 retirement mutual fund and just never really thought too much about it. I wasn't making that much money until probably I hit my 40s. I'm I'm an airline pilot right now for a major airline. In my 20s, I was, you know, building my hours, struggling with just these random jobs, just trying to um, acquire hours so I could get on with the airline. So in my 20s, I averaged about $18,000 a year. 
I wasn't making that much money, but I was still always, I would want to pay myself first, save about at least 15% of what I made and just put it away and didn't think much of it. My 30s, I was probably making average through my 30s, 50,000 a year. And then my 40s averaged around 90 to 100,000 a year. I didn't make my first $100,000 a year until I was 46 years old. So I wasn't making a ton of money, but I read that book, Millionaire Next Door, a while back. And what was interesting about that was just, it was just average jobs, average salaries, and it showed how these people could become millionaires. So we've always lived a very frugal life. My wife, fortunately, was on board with this life. So I was just saving up money so she could be a stay-at-home mom. She's a registered nurse, but when she was about eight months pregnant with her first child, she said, uh, she told me she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and quit her job. And so I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way. We'll be able to afford this. But I said, hey, if we can save 750 bucks a month, pay ourselves first, live a little frugal lifestyle, no problem at all. So that's kind of uh, where we're at. She ended up going back to work about five or six years ago as a school nurse. Um, so our income has increased um, quite a bit with, with hers. But that's kind of uh, where I'm at now. But the money just somehow snowballed to uh, $2.2 million in our net worth. And like I said, we really didn't think much of it, just kind of put it on autopilot and uh, started dabbling with uh, rental properties five years ago just because I always wanted to. And I, I used to listen to uh, and read D Dave Ramsey. And he was really big about not having any kind of debt other than maybe a mortgage and even that get it paid down. So that was sort of my mentality for many, many years. So my first uh, rental property we bought five years ago actually was a vacation rental in Branson, Missouri. We stayed up there at a cabin very similar to it. And uh, I paid, we paid cash for it because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. Don't ever <laughs> take out more debt. So um, we did it. We that pulled out about $62,000 out of uh, our Roth IRAs. Um, you know, you can take out the, the principal um, without taking any, any tax uh, hits on it. Pulled out about twenty five or thirty thousand in savings, and then I got a home equity line of credit on my house for like I think thirty eight thousand. So we came up with one hundred thirty thousand and got our first rental, and that was that was kind of how we got started in the real estate. And just been slowly buying more ever since, most with uh, leverage through banks. But we did end up buying another one with cash, a cheaper one. But uh, that's kind of where sort of where I'm at right now. Awesome. Let's get let's get into some of the details here because this is quite remarkable. You, you start out, you're making eighteen thousand. You get up, you don't hit six figures until about three years ago. How did you start putting some of that money away when you were in your twenties? Yeah, it was crazy. Um, my first couple of years out of college, I was a uh, flight instructor and flying corporate and just random jobs, not making much money at all. Then I got a job flying. Uh, for a cargo airline, I think I made thirteen thousand my first year. And my first year in the, at the regional airline, I only made fifteen thousand. So I wasn't making much money at all. But I always wanted to make sure that I uh, I saved money. So I was living off cereal and spaghetti and whatever I could to save money. So even when I proposed to my wife, I, we dated for about four years before I proposed. I want to have cash. I had five thousand dollars somehow saved up, so I knew I was going to propose to her eventually. And we bought our first house. I somehow scrapped money just to be able to have that. So I was always just really against having debt and just wanted to have a just get ahead of things. So when we were when we were in our twenties, for example, and even thirties, gosh, probably to when I was forty, we get those coupon books. I don't know if they even sell them anymore for like probably twenty or thirty bucks. I think they're like twenty bucks. Buy one, get one free. Restaurants, activities, entertainment around you know the area. So every time we went out to eat, it was like. We didn't go out very often, but it was like, where do you want to go? We'd go to the coupon book and look for a, 
buy one, get one free. But that was just kind of our mentality. If I pay myself first, whatever we have left over, this is this is how we'll have to uh, live our lives. Our vacations, we did it really cheap. So we were able to just get by off not much at all. And anytime I had a raise, I would just, you know, that lifestyle creep, I wouldn't let that kind of interfere with our lives. I'd just start chucking that away. So I started getting Roth IRAs, probably my late 20s, early 30s. I wouldn't tell my wife, but I would just, if I had an extra 500 bucks in the month, damn, I throw it in there back and forth. And some years I was actually able to max it out. Some years I was able to put just zero in there, just the cost of living and everything going on in life. But I was always able to somehow save money and we're always somehow able to get by. And in that book, The Millionaire Next Door, one of the common denominators of these just average people that became millionaires was if their wife was on board, unfortunately. My wife was frugal and she was on, on board with all this. So, so whenever I did get raises, we would, we would, uh, spend a little more money on some things, but I probably socked 80% of that, whatever that raise was in our Roth IRAs or somewhere. But we were somehow able to, uh, manage that. I always drove cars that were worth probably less than a thousand bucks. I mean, I drove beaters until just last year when I was 48. I finally bought myself a, a used $24,000 car. But I was driving carpooling kids in my old minivan. I mean, the, the liner on the ceiling would be hanging down. We must have had like 30 or 40 like little safety pins holding that thing up. It smelled bad. It had dents in it. It was just faded. My kids are just mortified that I had to drive all these kids around from school, the dance studios and this and that. But <laughs> we, they just kind of got used to it. I finally bought my this car. Like I, it was like three years old. Nissan Pathfinder for 24000 It had all the bells and whistles, like leather seats and automated this and automated that. And my daughter... We're te- we we I drove home and she says, "Oh my gosh, Dad, this is your new car?" And we're driving around. She says, "Are we like millionaires? Like this is crazy." And I'm like, "Well, maybe." <laughs> She's like, "What?" Well, you know, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So and I thought, you know, I only have them. One's a freshman. Son's a freshman. Daughter's a sophomore. So I only have them for a few more years. I'm like, I might as well splurge a little bit, live it up. We're doing family vacations, and they just dread getting this little tiny Dodge Caravan or whatever. Anyway, yeah, we're we're able to somehow manage, and everybody was kind of on board with it. My kids would always make fun of me; they still do. Like my phone is my hand-me-down for my kids. I, I I'm okay with stuff. All my shirts and clothes I get from I, I run marathons. I do the Boston Marathon every year, and did got in the triathlons and doing Ironman. So most of my wardrobe is like those free shirts they give you, you know, like finisher shirt or whatever for the thing. So. Um, we just don't have, uh, we just really don't spend that much money. We're kind of frugal. My wife, she buys her clothes all on clearance. Like for example, summer stuff, she'll go buy now and get it on clearance for like two or three bucks or whatever. And then when it's summertime, she'll buy her winter stuff. And a lot of times she'll just like sleep on it. She'll see something she really wants. And then she'll tell me about it and she waits 24 hours or something and see if she really needs it. And then she'll go buy the next day. Um, but that's kind of how we've been able to to get by with uh, not much, but I feel like I haven't really missed out on life. Um, I was able to, um, we able to be around our kids and watch them grow up. Like I said, my wife's a stay-at-home mom, so she was there until the kids were about 10 years old. And um, I've been with the airline since 97, so I've been on call reserve, basically. You're, you're, work, you're on call about four days a week. You don't make as much money, but you get a lot of time off. So sometimes I only work one day a week, sometimes two, sometimes I go three weeks without even getting a trip. So the whole time I'm on call, Part of the day, I'm hanging out with uh, the kids. I'm at every activity, every event. I'm carpooling and just getting a lot of good quality time with the kids. But we decided that that was more important in life is to have a lot of time off and just focus on our family and focus on that. And I knew if all that our investments were kind of on autopilot in the stock market, 
And now in real estate, everything will kind of work out at the end. So, you know, maybe once a year, I check my portfolio, see what's going on sometimes twice a year and just kind of track, make sure, you know, maybe I need to rebalance some stocks here or there, but that's kind of how it's been uh, going. That's pretty cool, John, because I think most of the people that we have on are, are regularly tracking and, and kind of updating things and maybe even maintain a budget of sorts or some spreadsheet to track their net worth. So pretty interesting to hear that you only track it a couple times a year or check it out. Right. I get on there probably, you know, once a week and I might I might look kind of see what's what's going on, especially if a stock had a big day or something else like that. I'm just kind of curious. But I don't really uh I don't really focus on it too much. I know everything's kind of in a good place and it's, it's going to be just snowballing. So that's kind of yeah. been my, my mentality. Yeah. So I want to back up a little bit here on your allocation and then talk about these rentals and, and kind of keep moving on. So your allocation in the market or the money rather you have in the equities, is that index funds or mutual funds, bonds? How are you allocated in your money in the market? So right now I'm about 73% of um, all our 401k and Roth money in uh, stocks. So in my 401k, I've got 800,000 in there and only 210,000 is in uh, three mutual funds and six index funds, but only 210 of that 800,000 is in, uh, in that. The rest are just in stocks. Our Roth IRAs, they're 100% in stocks. And then we have- And when you, uh, when you say stocks, you mean individual stocks? Yeah, individual stocks. So a total of 14 individual stocks is- um, what we own between our two Roth IRAs and my uh, 401k. I moved a lot of my money in my 401k into like a brokerage account where I could just buy individual stocks. And I started doing that maybe five years ago or something, just kind of dabbled a little here and there. And I ended up just by luck <laughs> doing pretty well off some of the stocks I was picking. So um, I just been kind of keeping track and I've been beating the S and P and, and the, uh, the stock market. So I just been kind of moving um, money into that. So I'm not paying all those, um, maintenance fees and mutual funds and stuff like that. And I've been doing pretty well. I watched CNBC and listen to the analysts on what they're talking about. And I kind of get a vibe for certain stocks that I feel like, uh, happening, whether a lot of like technology stocks like that, like, uh, I've got into Facebook and Amazon. Amazon's my biggest uh, position. I think I've got about 270,000 in Amazon. It's just been going up and. I used to, if a stock doubled, Jim Cramer would say, if your stock doubles, you gotta, he'd call you a pig if you didn't sell it. You need to like take off like 50%. So I used to do that with Apple. It would double, I'd sell 50% and buy something else. But now I've just, on some hot stocks that have just been going up like crazy, like Amazon, Facebook, and Netflix, I just let it ride. I kind of feel like it's some of its house money. And until it comes, <laughs> starts crashing down, maybe 20%, maybe I'll take some money off. And I'm like, Man, I ended up selling all my Apple and I kept taking money off and it just kept doubling. So that's kind of how I've been doing um, that. Gotcha. So do you ever think about just rolling everything into like an S&P 500 index fund or you just kind of enjoy playing with the single stocks or just let it roll and whatever? Yeah, I think for now, um, I probably will put in some kind of an S&P 500 fund as I get closer to retirement age. They uh, they moved the retirement age from 60 to 65 now. So I've got an extra... And I love my job. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd fly for free. That's how much I like it. So I'll probably go till 65. But I've always planned financially to retire at 60. You know, who knows? I might, you might have a medical problem or might, I might get burned out. But as I get closer to retirement, maybe around 60 or something, I might put a larger percent in uh, some kind of an index fund like that. But right now, I kind of, I kind of enjoy it. And if I, if I get burned, you know, for six months or a year or something else like that, then I'll probably, 
rebalance it. But for right now, I'm just going to let it ride in 73% stocks. <laughs> Maybe gotcha. bring in more. Yeah. So these rentals, let's dive into it. I know you, you mentioned to Jace how you kind of got started and bought this first one, but maybe give us a high level overview. You you said you have nine rentals. Is that right? Right. So 2000, uh, 2015, we bought two, paid cash for, for both of them. First one was 130000 The second one was, uh, I got a, it was like a foreclosure. It was a vacation rental. I paid 60000 About a year and a half later, somebody offered me 100000 for it. So I wasn't even looking at for sale. So I decided to sell it and dabble into single family rentals in the Dallas Fort Worth area. So I did a ten thirty one exchange on it. So I basically made like forty thousand off it for holding it for only a year and a half. Didn't really do anything to it. Um and then I so I that was the first time I used leverage on a rental. So uh I got a little less than one percent on the uh on the rent. So I think I, I paid about two hundred and twenty five thousand. I'm getting nineteen fifty in rent. So then I kinda got the idea, I saw how using that leverage really could work to your advantage. So I took a home equity loan off our house uh, about um, three about three years ago. I took out a hundred thousand, um, used some of it to upgrade our house, uh fixed up a few things. But I bought three rentals just putting twenty percent down. Two of them were in the hundred and twenty five thousand dollar range and one was a hundred thousand. And uh I just saw how well that how the uh, that leverage is working on those rentals. And uh, it's making about I don't know, probably 200 bucks a door on each house, a 15 year loan. So that's kind of how I got going about 2017. And then from then I've been buying about one or two a year. I bought actually three in the last, well, the last uh, seven or eight months. So my first house I paid cash for, I decided to do a cash out refi. So I paid 134, it appraised at 200. The bank gave me about 146,000. I used that money, low balls and got, got a, got a house, fixed it up, put some tenants in it. Went to the bank literally like three months later and they gave me, uh, let's see, 70% cash back. Used that cash, made a low ball offer in another house. Um, got it because I had cash. And then same thing about, uh, three weeks ago, I made another offer, cash offer and, um, took the money out of that house. So that's how I've acquired, um, some of, some of my houses. So I own two outright and then the other, uh, seven we've got loans on. So after all my expenses, I don't have any, I have a property manager manager just on the, the one vacation rental in Branson, Missouri, but all my other ones, I just manage it myself. So after all my expenses on all my rentals, our net income is about 3000 bucks, like 3400 bucks. If nothing breaks, uh, that doesn't count CapEx or saving money for- And that's per, that's per month. That's per month. Yeah, per month. So, gotcha. so you know, you're going to have it like last week, I had a gas leak in one of my houses that cost like, oh gosh, it was like 4000 bucks. It was a big deal, but no big deal. I, I'm bringing in about 3,400 bucks a month, so I didn't make any money that month. I might go six months without having a major issue. So I've got positive cash flow on that. And most of my rentals, I've got uh, my tenants are either like handymen, construction men, or people who just really appreciate having a house, maybe a hundred bucks, 150 bucks under the going rate. So they don't bother me for anything. Little things break. They seem to kind of take care of everything. So the property management side of the rentals so far has been uh, really easy for me, knock on wood. So well, you do it all yourself. Bucks. You manage everything yourself. Yeah. So I manage everything myself. Um, and I just, I just call, if something breaks, I call somebody else to go over there. My wife was getting a little irritated when I started buying more than, uh, gosh, after, after I bought my second or third rental, she was kind of freaked out that we're buying houses. Now we're leveraging and getting these big mortgages and we'd go to the bank and sign and, and, uh, she was really against me 
find rental properties. Um, and then I'd go over and fix a house, a little plumbing leak, and it'd take me like, like six hours where it could take the plumber probably 30 minutes. I'm running back and forth to Home Depot and spending time away from the family. And uh, she kind of slipped out about that. So I, I promised her from that point on, I won't go and fix anything. I'll hire somebody to go do it. It's no big deal. So she's a little more on board with the uh, the rental property <laughs> in that regard. But I figure I'd save about a thousand bucks a month on property management fees. So no right. big deal if I got to pay a guy two or 300 bucks cash to go fix a plumbing problem or whatever. It's, it's money well spent to keep, uh, keep my, my wife happy. Yeah. So let's talk about how you find them and where they are. Are they all general area and, and do you connect with a broker? Or do you just look online? Yeah. So initially I, I had a broker, but I found it best. I bought most of them probably off the MLS. I just go on Zillow and I would use the listing agent. And I would say, I don't have a broker. I'll go with you. And they would give me usually a little more information than they probably should because they're representing the seller. And I could kind of feel them out on how desperate the seller was. So I found I can get a lot of intel by just going through the listing agent. So that's how I come up with some really low ball, borderline insulting offers because I kind of knew how desperate the, the seller was. Uh, and I found that worked out pretty good. A couple properties I got through word of mouth. A friend of a friend says, hey, this guy's selling a house and it needs a lot of work. And I would come in and say, hey, I could get cash. Because my cash cash out refis would take usually about three weeks for my bank. My credit union is pretty good about it. So I'd tell these people, hey, I'll make you a cash offer. I can close in three weeks. Um, and that kind of sealed the deal on a, on a couple of those. But I'd say most were through the, the MLS. And I, I've only rehabbed, let's see, two houses completely. You know, one house I spent about 50000 on the rehab, and then the other one I spent about twenty six thousand, and that's worked out pretty good. And I just wow. hired all out. And they're all pretty close to you, same general area. Yeah, they're all most are within twenty minutes. A couple are about thirty minutes away from me. I like to kind of keep them close, so if something happens, I can just pop in and 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 uh, and, and check it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, good for you. And and is the plan to kind of keep growing that real estate portfolio, or? Well, I keep I promised my wife when I got to rental house number six that would be the last, and then I kept finding good ones. Um, <laughs> so in, at one point, I think we hit like rental house number seven or eight. She's like, this is ridiculous. How many are you going to get? Like 10? And I said, well, secretly, 10 was always kind of my goal because each house makes about a thousand bucks a month after all my expenses, a thousand to twelve hundred. So I thought if I could get 10 houses, 10 grand a month. And they'll all be paid off. I've got them all. Uh, the ones I have the loans, they're on 15-year loans. So when I'm retired, probably about two two years before I retire, they'll all be paid off. So I thought 10 grand a month extra would be nice. It would help me sleep better in case the stock market, you know, crashes for I don't know how long, two, three, five years, or something else like that. I could we could live off 10 grand a month. So even if uh, we couldn't pull any money out of the market, so my plan was. Right. A few years before I retired, just maybe pull like, I don't know, three years worth of living expenses out of out of my retirement account and just put it in cash, that kind of a bucket, and then just live off the rental properties and some of that cash, and then uh, just kind of let the let it ride how the market goes. Um, but that's kind of the plan. So 10, so 10 houses, you know, I, I think I'll stop. And it's easy enough to manage 10 houses. But if I get more than that, it, it might get be too much of a handful you know sure. the worst the worst is like it's, it seems like i'm always on vacation like my phone blows up air conditioning are going out or mm. major things and i'm like oh no <laughs> but i think 10 would be a, an easy amount so how do you handle that you've just 
you just had you just have, have made connections with people that can go fix it even when you're out and you just give them a call and they go handle it exactly so usually my almost all the communication is through text so for example i was on a date with my wife a couple of months ago and uh, the ac went out so we sit down at happy hour and she hates talking about rentals she hates talking about finances it's, she just she can't stand it so i get a text from my tenant that hey the ac went out and uh, it was a pretty hot day so I just text my HVAC guy. I said, hey, can you send a guy out tomorrow to go check it out? And uh, it was all through text, no problem at all. So she she went to the bathroom and came back. She's like, oh, what was that about? I'm like, oh, nothing, nothing much. Just the HVAC went out. But yeah, no problem. I mean, it was $3,500. I need to buy a new uh, HVAC. It cost 3500 bucks. But when I bought that house, I knew it was an old an old yeah. system. It was it was going to go any minute. So it was it was no big deal. I had the money you know, set aside and prepared for that. But yeah, literally, it's just little text messages here and there, and I've got a, I got a plumber, I got a handyman, I got an HVAC guy, I got whatever nice. that, um, can deal with that, and I don't have to deal nice. with it all. Good for you. So price range, what are they, and is it how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms? Uh, most are, um, gosh, probably about half are four bedroom, two baths, and the other half are like maybe three, three bedrooms, two baths. So the price range, um, <laughs> the one I just picked up a few weeks ago is my cheapest house. It's worth about a hundred thousand. I paid seventy five cash for it, but the average house I'd probably say is worth around one hundred eighty thousand. Um, the most expensive house I have is two hundred sixty thousand. But as far as rent, you're looking at probably twelve hundred to uh, sixteen hundred a month on most of them. My most expensive one is nineteen fifty in rent, somewhere in that range. But each one, after all my property taxes, all that, all my expenses, like I said, I'm looking at about a thousand to twelve hundred a month. And I find that. These are cheaper end homes or neighborhoods that aren't great, uh, class C neighborhoods, maybe C pluses, not the greatest school district, but um, I like these houses because these tenants seem to be lifers. They don't seem to um, be the college educated. They're going to save money and end up buying their own home. These people act like they want to live in the house forever. They don't even want to buy my houses. So I kind of target that range. So in the North Texas area, you're talking about the 100 and, 120 to 100, you know, Sixty to seventy thousand dollar range. There's a huge demand for those, and you can usually get about one percent in rent from your purchase price, and that's going to cover everything and make you maybe a hundred, two hundred bucks a month. Hmm. So I just want to shift gears here a little bit, John. Let's talk about career a little bit. How much is flight school, and and where did you do that? Did you come out with any debt? So yeah, so I I got my private instrument and commercial license in college. My dad, fortunately, or my parents paid for all my flight training. So I, they probably spent, I graduated college in 93, probably 15,000 or so is what they paid. These days, it's about 80,000 to go zero to be ready for the airlines. You need to build up your hours for a couple of years to get your hours, but 80, 80 to 85,000 is you can get all your, uh, your ratings. But back then, it's probably like 15,000. But fortunately, my parents covered all my college. So I had zero debt. I guess that's, I should have said that earlier. Having zero debt coming out of college was huge. And my wife, fortunately, her dad paid for all her nursing school, her college. So she had zero debt. So when I was making, you know, $15,000 my first year at the airline, I think my second year I made about 18000 It was no big deal because we didn't have any debt. Um, and she was making about 28000 as a nurse, no debt. So I felt like, man, we had all kinds of money. But that's kind of the expense to become a pilot is uh, these days, about eighty to 85000 Gotcha. 
And then it, and I know it took you some time to make captain. What what can somebody expect if they were to go into flight school now? What I mean, I know it ebbs and flows kind of on on the market, right? And if the airlines are hiring or not, that's a big concern, I think, to some people that get into the industry. But what what would you say to plan on? Oh, it's it's a huge, huge demand. There's so many retirements. I think about fifty percent of all major airline pilots are gonna retire in the next ten years. In my oh, wow. it's even greater than that. So um, what they, the typical route would be, you'd start at a regional airline, first year pays, they give you bonus, signing bonuses, but it's about 60 grand in first year. Um, they're making captain in about a year and a half. So they're probably making, uh, maybe 70, 75,000. And then they'll top out at about a hundred thousand at a regional airline. But most guys just go to a regional for uh, a few years and then go out to major airlines, starting salary at a major airline right now. They've brought it way up to nine. I think it's like around 90 to 95,000 grade time. The captain is about five years, five or six years. So, um, I'm currently, I'm a, I'm a first officer co-pilot right now. I made a little over 200,000, but captain would, I'd probably make around 250 at, uh, at six years. But the, um, most of the captains, I'd say average about 300,000. And then if you're flying the wide body, the international heavy ones, they, uh, they top out around 400, 450. You can make more, you know, work in the system and work more hours. But there's a there's a huge demand. So as far as the return on your investment on becoming an airline pilot, I go to I teach I go to a career day at a lot of these schools and most kids they want to get rich, they want to make money tomorrow. It's kinda of weird. They just want to get rich off like YouTube or whatever. And you tell them it's gonna take you two years to get all your flight ready to get on with a, an airline, they think, Oh, that's too much. But compared to when I came up, it's it's amazing how much uh what, what kind of a demand there is and how much money that, that they're making. I mean, just signing bonuses at a regional airline, they'll give you $20,000 $20, your first day. Pretty much any regional airline, there's such a demand because there's so yeah. many retirements and they can't keep pilots because all the guys at the regionals, guys and gals, they're going to the majors. And and so many people are retiring at the majors. Uh, my airline's retiring like nine hundred, eight to 900 pilots a, a year. It's, it's insane. So it's, it's a great career to get into if anyone's interested. <laughs> yeah, John, I'm curious. I mean, should we all be traveling now? Are there going to be a shortage and there's going to be fewer flights in the future? No, they, they will find a way to pump out pilots. So they're doing programs with these kids in college that are like 18, 19 years old and interviewing them at a major airline. And they're pretty much set for life. So they're going to give them travel benefits. They can fly for free. They're giving people um, medical benefits right away like a friend of mine he was a school teacher he saw how little i work um we do we do training for uh marathons and ironmans and triathlons and stuff like that and he saw how much time i had he's like man do you ever work so i said you got to become an airline pilot so he quit at around 39 years old became a pilot um <laughs> and it took him about two and a half years got all his ratings and uh he got on at, at a regional airline he's going to upgrade probably pretty soon about a year and a half into it wow um and what is he making Pretty, right now? What's his first job after that? How much does he make? Um, his first year, he made uh, sixty-two thousand. This year, he'll probably make seventy thousand. Um, and it'll it'll keep going up. But he was as a school teacher, he was only making like um, fifty fifty-five thousand. Plus, he was coaching. You know, a little get some stipends with that. Right. He's making a little under sixty thousand. And they gave him the medical benefit and the free travel. So. Him and his wife and three kids—they're traveling all around for free. The, his, their parents were, were, were traveling standby for almost for free, and then they got the medical benefits, which was like four hundred bucks a month. Where he—they're on Obamacare for their whole family, paying like fifteen hundred. But the airlines are so desperate; they're trying to recruit people like that, saying, "Look, you interview with us once you get your private pilots or instrument rating, 
And um, if you fly for our airline, we will give you these really good uh, benefits, health insurance, and free airline passes. And once you get the, the 1,500 hours, you walk right over, and you only have to interview once. You only interviewed when he was probably 200 hours. And then after that, you'll flow into the main line, major airline. We'll never have to interview again and uh, be making the big bucks then. He'll probably make captain in three years because of the demand. Wow, so that's it, pretty it's crazy. A great, it's a great, great field to get into. Yeah. Do you, do you have a pension by chance? No. So they used to have pensions after uh, all the bankruptcies, um, all the airlines pretty much lost their pensions. So they gave us a 401k and the company just gives us 16% of whatever we make. So I, I put zero in my 401k and they just, they throw in 16%, which is pretty, that's, pretty generous. Yeah. That's, that's pretty lucrative. So 16% of your salary they're putting in there is, a, is basically a bonus to you almost. Yeah, exactly. Part of your comp package, however you want to call it. Right, right. For taking away the pension, that's that's kind of what they did. So it's a it's a pretty good deal. So I put zero in. I just let them give the sixteen percent. I think they threw in like thirty thousand last year, and then I just used uh, the rest of the money on my own, invested in the the real estate or stuff like that on on the side. Dang, for for Clark, all these millennials are friends that we hang out to want to travel and travel hack like crazy. Instead of turning credit cards, they should go be pilots. You know? Yeah, oh, really. yeah. <laughs> I mean, when when we were first traveling, we couldn't. This is when my wife quit. You know, we didn't have any money, so we go to those timeshare presentations they have everywhere. Yeah. And they give you these free, like, here's a free five nights in Honolulu. Most people can't afford the airfare, or they're not going to deal with all that. Well, we I could travel for free, so. I got a trip there. I got a trip uh, all inclusive in the Bahamas because we can fly for free. So we just go to these places. So I'm like, <laughs> so that, was our, that. that was our vacation. Yeah. Uh, my vacation didn't cost me any, any money at all. Like literally, like in some of these places, they put us in our condo. So we just like go to the grocery store and then bring the food and we'd cook our own stuff. So we weren't even really going out to restaurants on these vacations, but we're traveling around the world. Basically got these free things. But yeah, I, I do the points on uh, my credit card. I don't use it for the uh, air miles, obviously, but. Um, I use it for the hotels. So anytime we go places, you know, I get free hotels, which is kind of nice. But yeah, our vacations for years was like, it was basically for free. It's kind of cool. Wow, that's pretty awesome. So John, I know we touched on this a little bit, but where'd you kind of go from here? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where I go from here. I'm just going to kind of let it ride. I really enjoy the real estate. I didn't think I'd enjoy it that much. I would love to expand up to, you know, maybe 15 rental homes, but um, I promised my wife I would calm down and nine, 10 would be the most I'd ever get. But financially, I'm just going to kind of let it, let it just kind of ride here. I'm kind of a type B personality. I don't really get all worked up on things. I prioritize my time off. I read that book, a uh, four hour work week. I just like to have a lot of me time, a lot of time with the family. So my typical day, I just, I love going for trail runs today. I went for a nice two hour trail run and I do long three or four hour bike rides with my friends. I kind of prioritize that. I just kind of want to have that lifestyle throughout my wife. I told her she can quit her job now. Now that our rental um, income is about what her take home is at work. So once we're empty nesters, I'd love to just travel more and more. We do own a couple of timeshares. Um, after all those timeshare meetings we went to, I, we bought some that really low maintenance fees. It's actually a really cheap way to vacation. So from here on, I feel like I kind of live a semi-retired life right now. Um, with my work schedule, but once we're empty nesters, um, my kids are out of high school, we got another like four, three or four years to go. I think I'd like to just maybe travel more and maybe spend more money, increase my, increase our spending. I'm still sort of, uh, like the millionaire next door, they say, what, the people who saved money up all those years, they're still clipping coupons or, 
collecting cans or whatever, keep that up. I stopped clip, clipping coupons probably five years ago. I was probably saving 60 to 80 bucks a month. Not a great amount, but it was enough that made a difference. But I think from here, I'd probably spend a little more money and kind of live in the now instead of uh, save, 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 save. Cause, like, you get on those financial calculators on how much money you're going to have. And I don't want to retire with $6 million and be living off only 80000 a year and having to just snowball into millions and millions and millions. But I'd like to spend a little more money now and it's, it's kind of a hard mindset but um i'm slowly relaxing like when i bought that car last year i've got a, a car loan by the way <laughs> i was really nervous about that but i took my daughter to a basketball game we bought hundred dollar tickets hundred dollars each but i'm training myself to like it's okay relax we're ahead of schedule we can we can live a little bit spend a little bit i just don't want to be that tight one that's just saving my whole life and where i could have had a little more time or spend a little more money doing some fun things instead of waiting till I'm older and retire. Because I feel like I've got my health and my youth right now. I just want to kind of enjoy that. But financially, I think I'm kind of set up. I'll probably allocate maybe more of my uh, money into uh, something a little more conservative. I feel like I'm a little too reckless and aggressive now, but it's been working for me. Like I said, my net worth has been doubling since 2003. It's been doubling every three years. The only setback was 2009 when everyone kind of got clobbered, but after 2009, it, it doubled every three years. So I'm just kind of letting that ride and kind of leaving that on autopilot and um, just focus on and having as much time with my family and doing the hobbies that I enjoy. Yeah, no, I think you bring up an interesting discussion. You know, we had a, a guest on a little while ago and, and he kind of made the, the comment that, you know, it's really hard to make the switch from the habits and the things that got you to where you are, like you mentioned, you know, you clip coupons and, and whatnot, and maybe that one was similar, easier for you to give up, but, you know, trying to live and trying to flip that switch, what what's kind of made you successful in doing some of that? Sounds like you've been able to make that transition so far pretty well. I think um, probably getting yelled by my son for being so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, because he, you know, we live, you know, our social economic class of the neighborhood and the people and the friends and the people we associate with seems like they, they have the latest, greatest and they spend a little more money. And I've always been kind of withholding and I try to explain them. Hey, I'm trying to save for your college. I'm trying to save for this, but we have money. We have money. And they ask me, well, how much do we have? And so I don't, money's always been with most families like taboo, like you can't talk about it. So I want my kids to know how much money we have and how we got there. But I think after being told like how cheap I am, by him over and over, like, we can afford it. We can do this. We can, you know, I think I finally realized like, you know what? Maybe I, maybe I should live a little and have it. Like, for example, my minivan, I was given an oil change last April and underneath the car and I, I discovered a big oil leak underneath there. And my wife came in the garage. She's like, I said, Oh no. She's like, it's what? I said, Oh, I got an oil leak and I got to get this fixed. And she said, this is ridiculous. Like, why don't you just get a new car? I'm, and I said, you know what? Maybe I should. So she got online and she's looking at cars. <laughs> and next thing you know, she's telling me to go, go to this place and, Go look at these cars, and I'm like, what? Um, but I think things like that, like, you know what? Maybe I should get with the times and and be able to like spend a little money and and, and live it, because I just I just don't want to I, I just don't want to be so uptight that I can't do all that stuff, especially when my kids are young and around the house and stuff like that. And like I said, that that nest egg just keeps building. I mean, I don't expect it to double every three years. I was kind of thinking every seven to ten years it would double. But um, I think my mindset's slowly shifting where it's like, hey, it's it's okay. And especially with the rental properties, I'm having stuff break down left and right. I've done some rehabs that cost me like way more money than I thought. So I'm chucking another five grand here, 10 grand here. So now I'm kind of moving more money around. I'm 
I can stomach spending that much more money on certain things. And my, my wife sees some of these rental houses that I've rehabbed and she says, my gosh, their kitchens are nicer than ours. You know, like granite crown tarps and their showers are nicer than ours. You know, something like, well, maybe I should upgrade our house and spend a little money on our house. So I finally just got her, uh, some stainless steel. We got some stainless steel appliances in the kitchen just so we didn't have the old white stuff in there. And they worked perfectly fine. The oven, microwave and fridge and dishwasher. But, um, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I had to like, we had to like spend a little money and, and feel good about ourselves than being such tight wads about it and being frugal forever. So I think I'm slowly adjusting. No, that's a good answer. And, and Jace is a good question because I, I think it's something that people struggle with. And even some of the millionaires that we've interviewed, when we asked that, it's kind of hard to change that dynamic, right? To turn on that switch and, and change the attitude if they've been so frugal for 20, 30 years, right? And then all of a sudden they become a millionaire worth two or three and then they realize geez how am i going to spend it all right yeah so, exactly and i just and i just flew with this guy he had he had seven or eight million dollars at the, at the end of a four-day trip and i could tell he was just a tight one he was a check airman so he was making about four hundred and fifty thousand a year good income his wife made it i think around two hundred thousand they live in houston she worked in the oil industry they just piled the money they shared a car um to save money they live in a little town home they keep the temperature at like uh I think 82 degrees, unless they have company, it'll turn it down to 78 degrees. So he's telling me all this stuff. And he really wanted to buy this shirt, this little running texture. And it was, it was like 29 bucks. And he's like, Oh, I just can't justify spending that. And, um, he knew another <laughs> store that might have the same shirt. So he goes to this other store and it was like the same price, you know, 29, 27 bucks. And he just, it just killed him. And he had the same one that had holes in it. He's like, ah, I could probably get another six months out of it. Well, that's how I am with my clothes. And some some of my things, like oh, I could probably get like running shoes. You know, you should have a good pair of running shoes. I'd I'd buy you know these forty dollar pairs of running shoes that are like discounted from like last year's model or something, and I'll wear them for three years. And I'm I'm running a lot of miles. Like I'm like almost running wearing the whole sole down um, before I replace my running shoes. But that's how he was, and I thought I don't want to be like that guy. And I told him like you got seven million dollars and you have zero debt. I'm like what are you worried about? He's just like oh I I don't know you know and he just. And he joked about it. He's just like, I, I can't, I've always been saving money and always worried about my job or getting laid off or this or that. I'm like, you're a senior captain, you're making good money. But um, yeah, some people get in that mindset and it's what got them there. But I definitely don't want to uh, live like that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just wrap up here. I know we're taking enough of your time. So I just want to ask you a couple rapid fire questions here before we end. Um, what's been the most expensive car you've ever purchased? Uh, the one I just got last year, 24000 Okay. What about most expensive meal out that you've personally paid for? Um, hundred and seventeen dollars. We took some fam- uh, uh, some family out. That was about it. But generally, we don't eat out much. Usually, the most expensive before that is probably like eighty bucks or something. Yeah. And then I think you mentioned this at the beginning, forty six, I believe. But is that how old you were when you became a millionaire? Yes, forty six years old. Okay. Have you ever used a financial advisor? No. Okay. Household spending. How much do you spend a year? Uh, probably. I mean, our kids are in a lot of expensive activities. I'd say probably ninety to hundred thousand a year right now. Okay, and then range of household income. I, th- I think you covered. And then lastly, for you, and I think you've touched on this a little bit. What does it mean to be happy or fulfilled? And maybe along the line, has has money and career success, I guess, brought you that? Yeah, I think what money has brought is uh just that security just so you can sleep easy at night and if you get ahead of yourself you have more money than you really think you need it just it brings me a lot of just peace knowing if something happened but what brings me happiness is just time just having time with my family time doing the, the hobbies 
that I enjoy doing. I like to take daily naps, just have a really laid back lifestyle. So that kind of brings me happiness. And like I said, time with my family and vacation time. Awesome. And then, John, I want to just ask you in closing, because I think you're in a a unique situation here and in the career you chose. You said you only made, what, about $18,000, $20,000 into your 20s? Yes. And then in your 30s, 30s, it got up to 50? Yeah, probably 50 to 55,000 was my average in my 30s. And then 40s, 90 to 100,000. So just as you were making this money in your 20s and 30s, right? You said you got up to about 20. K in your 20s and, and 40 to 50 in your 30s. And I'm asking this, I guess, general advice for people that may be in the, situ- in the same situation where they feel like they're working hard and maybe can't save as much or get ahead either financially or in their career. How did you stay motivated and what kind of was your driving factor internally to kind of keep going? And now, I mean, it's amazing. You have a net worth of over $2 million. What's your advice to somebody maybe who is in a similar position as you and just trying to get ahead? Yeah, my advice would be um, just stick with it. And in a perfect world, yeah, I I was would hope my salary would go up. But it, even if it didn't, I like I said, I calculated what I needed to get to whatever I needed. To, so to get to a million dollars back then, I needed to save seven hundred fifty. So if they, uh, my advice would be if they could just save your money, save money, pay yourself first, and save that money, and um, just put it on autopilot, and you definitely will get there. And another big advice I would say is tuck away as much money as you can in your Roth IRAs. At first, I had some taxable uh, accounts through Fidelity that I was buying mutual funds and and stocks. But my biggest advice would be put that as much money as you can in your individual Roth IRAs. But um, just never give up and just and, and keep saving. And eventually, that compound interest will really go up. Another advice I'd say is whenever the stock market dips, I would always throw as much money as I could. It was a buying opportunity for me. So I would get actually get excited when the market would go down. I would save every little penny and put it in there. When we had the financial uh, uh, banking um, crisis in the around 2008, 2009, I was buying all those bank stocks when, they, when it went down. So that's another advice I would say. Hey, there's going to be times you can buy on the dip every eight years, seven years, 10 years. Man, I would I would put as much as you can and and get some discounted uh, um, stocks. Yeah, I mean, speaking of yours, it's amazing. You hit a million at forty six, and just what two or three years later, you you got your second million. So it happened pretty quick. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Actually, it was uh, forty seven years old when I hit my first. Forty seven. Forty six. Forty six was the first year I hit, I hit a hundred thousand dollars a year. So oh, gotcha, you gotcha. Know, people, people think like, oh, you're a rich airline pilot, you're making bank, but like I didn't make a hundred thousand until I was forty six years old. It's not like I, I've been crushing it my whole life. The last you know few years I've been doing okay, but um, wow. yeah, it was 2000 uh, when I was 40. Yeah, I guess I was 46 years old, 2017 when I hit my first million. Well, way to go, man! It's an inspirational story, and, and we're appreciative that you came on to share it, everyone. That's John, net worth of over two million. Thank you, thank you so much for coming on tonight and sharing your story. All right, you bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.